Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. A child in Scientology is not considered to be a child. They're considered to be an adult in a small body. Mm. In the cadet organization, children were essentially now being trained to become members of the C organization. So my mom joined as a single mom. I was handed over to the cadet organization. I was lucky if I'd see her two, three hours a week. I was being bullied by this this boy who was a year or two older than me he kept pinching me and so I went to the adult that was in charge and I and I was crying and of course she says well what did you do to pull it in oh my gosh and I just thought I am completely and utterly alone I just mentally shifted into protect mode yeah survival mode nobody here is on my side so therefore I'm just gonna have to figure out how to survive somehow some way Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening and you want to see our faces, you can go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like, you can subscribe, become one of the supporters of these amazing guests coming on and telling their story. You can leave those words of encouragement for the guests. It means a lot to them. It means a lot to me, and it boosts the algorithm. So thank you guys for tuning in for this episode. I'm so excited. This is someone who I've wanted to have on for a while. And then when she reached out to me, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. If you are familiar with the ex-Scientology space, you probably probably already know who she is. She was part of the Aftermath TV show with Leah Remini. She had her own episode. And now she's the president of the Aftermath Foundation. And her and her husband have their own channel, Blown for Good. So thank you so much for joining us, Claire Headley. Thank you so much for having me on. I love the work that you do. And and yes, evidently this was meant to be. Great minds think alike, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was inevitable. It had to happen at some point. And we just have so much to talk about. You have an incredible story. And we realized early on that it's not just going to be one episode. It definitely has to be two. So guys, this is the first one. We are going to be diving into her childhood and what it was like growing up just full on in Scientology, what that looked like. Uh, We've done a couple episodes where we talk about growing up in Scientology, one with Aaron Smith-Levin from Growing Up in Scientology, and another one with Danny, who told her story about living in Los Angeles. And we did an amazing episode with Apostate Alex, who has his own YouTube channel, as well as Kelly Copter, talking about her life growing up in Scientology. And now I was like, you know what, let's let's dive into that a little bit more, get another perspective on what that was like as a child. And then in the next episode, we're going to go into all the juicy stuff, how she rose to the ranks, uh, became one of the the top ranking members of Scientology, what that looked like, and then leaving. And then as a little bonus, because we've done an episode or two on the Danny Masterson trial, we're going to talk a little bit about her involvement in it. And it's going to be so good, guys. I can't wait. There's so much to get into. Yes. So let's just dive in. Where do you want to start, Claire? Do you want to talk about your parents and how they were involved? I'll just give you the floor. Sure. Sounds good. So yes, 
Um, so I was born in England. Uh, nobody believes that anymore because I worked wow. really hard to lose my accent. I was told I was going to be too old to lose it. And I said, challenge accepted. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I lived, I was born in England and lived there until I was 13 years old. Um, and so, you know, being born in the seventies, it was, uh, my parents were both, uh, let's see, precise definition typecast hippies. Oh. And my mom, uh, she got pregnant with me at a very young age. She was 17 when she got pregnant with me. And she was the rebellious teenager, you know, had been raised in a Irish Roman Catholic family. She'd gone to Roman Catholic schools with nuns as teachers. I mean, you know, I, I haven't had a lot of opportunity to compare notes with her because she disconnected from me when I left Scientology, but that's my understanding from the family I've talked to that I have been able to find and have connection with outside of Scientology. She and my dad both were actually in Scientology at the time she, she got pregnant with me. Um, they were working at the Manchester organization, um, the Scientology organization, and they had, uh, to, to my understanding, they had both signed staff contracts working there. So yeah, I was born into Scientology. Um, ironically, my name uh, is based on the state of clear, which... No, it is uh, not. I know. Oh, oh, <laughs> so no. sad. <laughs> oh, no. I'm just like, I know. I, I it's, it's just one of those things. I was like, man... Did I have to be named after the state of Claire? Because, you know, of course, in French, Claire means clear. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it is such a beautiful name. So uh, I wouldn't want you to change it. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to disassociate, you know, the... The, the meaning. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. I'll, I'll give it a new definition. We'll just yeah. have it mean light. We're going to shine light on Scientology. How perfect. about that? Perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so I was born in and uh, like my mom would always tell me um, when I was growing up that she read um, Dianetics, um, The Modern Science of Mental Health when she was pregnant with me. For the first few years, I guess you'd say, other than being born into a cult, that was, you know, not a whole lot different. Um, but I would say that very early on, cracks started to form um, in that my dad decided he didn't want anything more to do with Scientology. Um, mm. So he left staff and my parents ended up divorcing when I was three years old. Ultimately, my dad left and my mom then joined the C organization when I was four years old. So that means she signed the billion year contract, committing herself to um, the paramilitary elite organization in Scientology where members live communally and for very little pay have devoted their life completely to the service and management of Scientology. Wow. Yeah, the it's it's kind of crazy that um one story that I do remember my mom telling me was that when when my parents divorced again I was 3 years old she said that I stopped talking completely, which doesn't surprise me. It's one of those things that I I have in my mind I do have the memory of thinking it was my fault mm. and just knowing that my dad was gone and 
you know, again, I don't really, I don't remember that much about him, but that moment of, and feeling of loss, I absolutely remember. And of course, my mother, then her response to that was to use Scientology to fix this. So she took me into the organization. Again, I'm three years old. Yeah, I was just going to say, but wait, you're only three years old? (laughs) Yeah, she is. And I guess it just serves to illustrate the point of how deeply Scientologists use Scientology in every aspect of their life. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not just a, Oh, we go to church on Sundays. In fact, there's none of that. Sure. We don't, they don't pray. They don't believe in God. It's an applied religious philosophy. So meaning every single itty bitty piece of their life is managed and directed and dictated by the disciplines and beliefs of Scientology. So she took me into the organization at age three. They told her to give me an R factor, which is a reality factor, which means essentially, oh, let me explain to you what's going on in, you know, real world language. (laughs) That's what it means. So they, she explained to me, I don't, and I don't even obviously remember exactly what she said, but she was supposed to explain to me that my dad was gone and everything's going to be okay. And, you know, of course, none of that ended up being true at all. (laughs) Mm. Everything was very not okay, but that's all. Right. Would you say the reason they divorced was because he left Scientology or do you think there were other things at play? I absolutely believe their divorce uh, was triggered by and primarily driven by him leaving Scientology. <sighs> what what my mother told me growing up is that he cheated on her, and you know what? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I've I have not been able to reconnect with him even since leaving, but and I'm sure there's there's reasons for that. You know, it's, it's neither here nor there. I've connected with his family, his brother, mm-hmm. like my uncles, my aunts. So they've all told me that Scientology was the absolute catalyst that destroyed their marriage. Um, so oh. yeah. Okay. I just wanted to see if there was correlation there because it happens so often in cults and high demand groups when one spouse all of a sudden says, I don't want to do this anymore. It seems like the organization or the group pressures the other person to get rid of them and say, well, they're going to hurt your salvation if you continue to stay married or whatever it is they want to they want to keep you in. And if that means the other spouse might pull you out with them, that's a huge no. Yes, that is completely the case in Scientology and is generally very much how they approach it. Um, if you're just as you said, if somebody's leaving or expressing critical thoughts, then they Scientology's response to that will be to drive a giant wedge as quickly and thoroughly into that relationship as they can t- with the intent to split them up. Yeah. Okay, so um, you're in there and you're three years old and they're trying to explain to you what's going on. Yes, yes, exactly. And so um, I guess eventually I started talking again, but um, the next significant step, uh, at least in, in my childhood, was shortly thereafter at the age of four, my mother joined the SEER organization. As I said, she signed a billion-year contract. And whereas up until this point we'd been living in Manchester, 
close to my grandmother and other family. Now uh, we were uprooted and moved to East Grinstead, where St. Hill is the headquarters for Scientology in England. We ended up at this place called Stonelands, um, which was kind of this old, creepy <laughs> country manor where everybody in the Sea Organization, including the children, lived communally. Any children of Sea Org members were placed into what's called the Cadet Organization. Um, a child in Scientology is not considered to be a child. They're considered to be an adult in a small body. Mm. In the cadet organization, children were essentially now being trained to become members of the C organization. So my mom joined as a single mom. I was handed over to the cadet organization and I would, from that point forward, I would I was lucky if I'd see her two, three hours a week. Oh, my gosh. What was that doing to you as a child? Were you still thinking that it was your fault that you weren't able to see your mom? Or were you starting to understand your surroundings? I mean, you're only four, so I don't know how much you could understand about it. Yeah. Uh, what, I, what I do very clearly recall and remember as a recurring theme from that point forward through my childhood was just simply a, the constant battle that it was to try and get attention from my mother and spend any mm. time, any amount of time with her. I think at that point I was already kind of, I don't know that I was blaming it on myself any longer at that point or not. I just was struggling to try and have time and, uh, you know, that, that connection when you're a child, you want to spend mm -hmm. time with your, with your parents. And there was just such a severe lack of that. And between that and the, the sudden, an extreme change of environment. Um, like for example, you know, uh, I'm sure you, you probably know, and maybe people know, but in Scientology, they, they believe that if you, if something bad happens to you, then you, you did something to cause that. It's your fault. They don't, they believe that, uh, victim is a negative thing. Like no Scientologist will ever tell you, Oh, I'm, I'm a victim. That's a, that's actually a negative thing. People in Scientology will say, oh, stop being a victim. Um, and so at least for, for me, one of my beginning experiences in the cadet organization was I was being bullied by this, this boy who was a year or two older than me. He kept pinching me. And so I went to the adult that was in charge and I, and I was crying and I said, he's, he's pinching me. And, uh, <laughs> of course she says, well, what did you do to pull it in? Oh my gosh. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's like this moment where you go, I am completely and utterly alone. And you just, yeah. at least for me, looking back on it, I just mentally shifted into protect mode. Yeah, survival mode. This is not a safe environment. There's no, no nobody here is on my side. So therefore, I'm just going to have to figure out how to survive somehow, some way, and somehow make it through. And, you know, because even if I were to complain to my mother, she would say this, say and respond the same way. And then mm -hmm. if you rebel, then you risk losing your parent altogether. And obviously, I'd already lost my dad. I only had one parent left. <laughs> yeah. Who was raising you at this point? In this communal house. Yeah. So there was, um, so it was a, probably about 30 or 40 kids with one wow. adult 
And the way that they would structure it is that they would split us into groups of about five or six kids and make one of the kids be in charge and responsible for the other kids. So it was literally Lord of the Flies type scenario completely. Oh my gosh. So would you have kids that were, I mean, how much older than you? How Like the age range, who's in charge of you? Someone that's like a year older than you? Someone that's four years older than you? Yeah, the person who was in charge of my small group was the same age as me. But then the uh, the commanding officer is what it was called of the cadet organization. So in real world terms, the CEO of the kids was a 16 year old girl. <sighs> That's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and because there was such a lack of um, adult presence and um parental support and supervision um, or even parental involvement. There was just a, a lot of a lot of things awfully wrong. <laughs> In a situation growing up like that, you just go, you know, like, for example, when I was, um, let's see, I was around seven. And um, I was so I was living in a dorm, they had a girls dorm and a boys dorm in, in at Stonelands. And so it was probably about 20 girls in the room, you know, all with bunk beds. And it was this uh, old room that had this like floor hatchet hatchet in the middle of the room where you could crawl down and in, in the under space of this old, old house. Either way, um, I was sleeping in a bunk bed. And because we couldn't have, you know, sleepovers, as it were, sometimes we would just have be like, oh, you want to sleep in my bed tonight? You know, that's was our version of sleepovers. Uh, and my mom always was against that. She was like, please don't do that. Uh, we already the cadets tended to get lice very commonly. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, it's a lot of kids, not good hygiene, not good, you know, <laughs> again, c- complete lack of p- parental involvement. So there's nothing normal that you could say, like, uh, obviously, as a mom, now I compare my childhood to my kids. And I'm just like, what in the world was my mother thinking? Right. But either way, so I was sleeping in the storm. And I decided to go against my mother's wishes and have a sleepover with my friend. So um, we were both sleeping in the top bunk. And in the middle of the night, I rolled over and fell out of the bed landed on some wooden planks that had been left lying there. The impact Ooh. broke my collarbone and <gasps> the, the wood planks cut open my head. And um, there was a security guard, like a night watch person um, that would sit through the night. Uh, it was mainly to make sure people didn't escape. So, so I guess somehow he heard the sound or something. Anyway, either way, I don't really, I don't know if I was unconscious or what, but I know that the next morning I woke up and I was in my mom's room, which I was not normally allowed to to go in her room. Backing up a little bit, the, the part of my childhood that I loved the most was school because I got to go to a normal public school. And even though we would get teased and called names and, you know, it was... A, a lot of complications there. I still, I loved going to school. And so I woke up in the morning, broken collarbone, head cut open. And I just, oh. you know, again, I'm 
trained and indoctrinated to not complain about anything, to just do what I'm supposed to do. So I I went to school. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And, um, yeah. So obviously when you have, when you, when you've broken a collarbone, any slight movement of your arm is absolutely, uh, just, super, super painful. Um, so I couldn't really stop complaining and the way that, and then at some point the teacher noticed that my head was bleeding. So by lunchtime, I was called in to see the headmistress of the school and she, she just said, you have blood on your head. What happened? And, and it's funny. I did not realize until about 25 years later, thinking back on this, that, um, her line of questioning was completely, she obviously thought I'd been abused. Mm. And, you know, yes, no, no one had beat me up, but was this extreme neglect? Absolutely. Uh, you know, but I didn't say anything. I was just like, oh, I fell out of bed and that's what happened. And she said, okay, well, your mom is coming here to take you to the hospital, which even that was mortifying to me because that meant that my mother had now been taken off her work in the C organization and was having to come get me, which was going to be a big, you know, something I was going to most likely get in trouble for. Yeah. It's just an example of, you know, a day in the life of being a cadet growing up in the C organization, you know, unlike anything you'd think when you think, oh, what was your childhood like? <laughs> right. Did you have any sort of awareness that your childhood was different uh, like when you went to school and you saw other kids or like you said, you didn't mention anything to CPS or the not CPS. That's an American thing, I guess. Yeah. But um, the headmistress, because you didn't really understand the neglect. Did you have any sort of awareness that you were different at school? I did. Um, like I had, you know, obviously my friends in class, my classmates, they lived in normal houses with their parents. And, you know, I wanted that, that life so badly. I just was like, you know, I didn't understand why we had to be in this different, you know, circumstance. And, and I think my, my mom just explained it as like, Oh, well, you know, I'm, we're saving the planet, which of course, to a seven-year-old, like, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. Uh, why does this have to have an impact on my life? I don't understand. Um, but so, and, and because all the cadets would get bussed to school in this old bus, <laughs> you know, like benches on each side and very different than the normal, ki- the, the, the real world kids at that school. So we stuck out like, sore thumbs completely. And because of that, we would get teased, like we would get called names, Sino, and, you know, uh, a lot of the kit, a lot of the other cadets would be dirty or smelly, or like I said, uh, you know, lice was a very common problem among the cadets because of those factors. So yeah, it was, it was tough. I, you know, as a kid, even I was like, I wouldn't voice it, but I wanted nothing to do with that lifestyle. I just wanted to mm-hmm. live in a normal house. And even I, I had formed this unspoken plan in my head that I thought, well, um, <clears throat> in the C organization, you're not allowed to have children either. So I, I just thought, well, I'm being pressured to to join the C organization. I think I signed my first billion year contract when I was around seven. 
Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> they were, it was like a thing like, oh, well, all the cadets, obviously you're, you're being prepared to join the SEER organization. So you show the, they required it to, as a means to show your commitment, like, oh, everybody has to sign this contract. And of course, I mean, at seven, even at 16, the idea of a billion year commitment is just not a reality that your brain can, can work with. I mean, it's right. not even to, to an adult. Right. Yeah. So, um, anyway, but yeah, I had this kind of plan in my head, like this escape plan, so to speak, that I would, I was like, well, I'm gonna, um, get married. I'm going to have kids. I wanted to go to university. I wanted to become a teacher. And I, and, and I had it all rationalized and justified as, well, I will teach at a Scientology school. So therefore I can't be labeled as, you know, off purpose or out ethics. Those are the labels that a Scientologist would give such thoughts other than joining the C organization. And I thought, well, I'm going to have at least two kids. And then when I'm 45, uh, when my life is over, oh. then I'll join the C organization. Oh my <laughs> It's funny because now, yeah, now I'm like, well, when I passed my 45th birthday a couple of years ago, I was like, oh man. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a good plan. Well, right. Because as kids, we really have no concept of time when all you've lived is that amount of years, like a seven-year-old has no concept of even 20 years. Yes. And so just thinking about signing a billion-year contract when you have no real concept of time or how a lifespan plays out, it's really interesting. Yes. I mean, it's a lot like baptism. Like in Mormonism, you get baptized at eight and the parents are like, oh, we're so proud of our kids for choosing to be baptized. Like, girl, they don't know what that means. They don't know what they're signing up for. It's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Oh my gosh. That, that, that's crazy. It's funny the the now we're supposed to's that exist, I think, the parallel there of, you know, the now we're supposed to, the baptism, sign a billion year contract. You know, it's just again, the you're supposed to, and if you're if you're a non if you nonconform or you rebel, then there's consequences, at least in Scientology. I don't know about the I don't know if anyone ever puts up a, a fight about being baptized at age eight. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the shame. Like if someone were to say, no, I don't want to, which also is extremely rare, it would probably only happen in the case where one parent is Mormon and the other parent isn't, and they actually have kind of both sides to look at. But if the child were to say no, it would just be huge shame on the family mm. and everyone would be so embarrassed and mortified. So that's kind of the punishment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not good for an eight-year-old, but it's better than losing your parent altogether, I suppose. Le a lesser, lesser evil. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Was that manner that you were living in ever investigated? Because like you said, you guys all stood out so much based on how you looked and the hygiene and the abuse, obviously, like when you came in broken, were they ever, did they ever send anybody out there to check up on you guys, as far as you know? Not that I know of. Um, again, you know, I, I was, so I was there from age four to age 10. 
So I don't think that I would have had memory or knowledge if there was a problem. Yeah. I used to wish and hope for like a fairy tale ending to my childhood all the time. Be like, mm-hmm. maybe some long lost, you know, I wish I had a godmother who would just whisk me away and make everything be okay. <laughs> yeah. But um the amount of injuries and, you know, again, uh misbehavior and you know, just normal things that you would expect with such a, an extreme lack of adult supervision. Um, it was, it was commonplace there, like, you know, um, and of course, for any of the cadets that were misbehaving, the punishments were, you know, they'd have to do heavy manual labor and, um, they would be kind of ostracized from even just our kids group, like not allowed to talk to the, the main group, as it were, um, they'd have to do ethics conditions, which in Scientology is steps Hubbard devised for someone misbehaving or not, not performing as they should. That was common. It was also, um, you know, yes, we would go to public school, but then when we got home from that, we would, we would have to do, you know, maintenance around this manor or stolens is what it was called. It wasn't, yeah, it was not a, Manor kind of overstates it. It was a a rundown haunted mansion would more be the correct mm. like uh visual. <laughs> yeah. Um and so we all had posts or jobs as well. Every single cadet had a, a job that they were responsible for. Um my job was I was responsible for overseeing the everyone studying Scientology every night. So we would have study time and we'd go to this barn that had been converted into like a, a course room. And, um, we would all study there. So again, nothing, nothing about it is really representative of what you'd expect to, for a childhood to look like. Yeah. And I'm trying to put myself into the mindset of a child who's being raised this way, because I'm wondering if, you said kids were misbehaving, but also being punished for their misbehavior. And it seems like you're kind of dissociated from your emotions as a child because you weren't really allowed to feel certain things or feel victimized or or whatever it was. Did you find it hard to get people to study or kids to study this material or was everyone kind of in it too? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I don't remember like kids running away, um, but mind you, anyone that was misbehaving was kind of separated out. So you want, you you know, the tendency is to be a conformist and do what's expected of you. And because Mm -hmm. we all knew there were going to be some pretty harsh consequences if we didn't. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it was, and again, you know, we're six, seven, eight, eight years old and up studying, Scientology every day. And that was the priority over our education. Um, and, it, you know, the indoctrination beginning at, at such a young age just makes it that like, to this day, I can't, uh, I can't unforget the things that I have committed to memory. You know, I just go, mm. uh, like I did a, I did a draft TED talk that I auditioned for right before COVID. And yeah, it was great. I listened to it. <laughs> I didn't end up ever doing it. And, you know, life got in the way. I got busy, but, <laughs> um, it's, it's something that I really tried to kind of just encapsulate 
what it's like to grow up in a cult. Like if you're a child in that environment, how, how do you get out? It's not even your choice in the first place. So how do you even wake up to realize that you can or should, or you should be sure. able to choose whether you want to, to, you know, have that belief system or not? Like I, I often tell people that as soon as Scientology became a choice for me, I chose not to be a Scientologist. Hmm. Wow. And that's saying something because you rose pretty high in the ranks. Yes. So I think it just helps people understand the psychology behind it. And you mentioned in your TED talk that when you are a child and you're so indoctrinated into it, like you said, you don't realize that you have a choice. And it's that <laughs> the aha moment is when you suddenly wake up to something and you're like, wait, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it takes so much to get to that point, though. And I think that's what's really hard for most people to understand if they've never been in a high control group or cult is they're like, why don't you just leave? It's like it's not that simple at all. There's so many things at play. In fact, that's why you have the Aftermath Foundation to help pull people out and help give them resources because they don't even understand how the outside world works. If you're so completely isolated, your information is isolated, you are in this bubble. And even though you know you're uncomfortable, either one, you'll pretend that you're not or you'll try to convince yourself that you're not uncomfortable because you have to make it work because your life depends on it. Or you get really uncomfortable and that's what eventually pushes you to the breaking point and you realize even if I lose everything, it's better than where I'm at now. Completely, completely. And it's funny that you say that about the aha moment because the amount of times that I knew I was heading towards that moment and walked myself back, like I would, the fear and control and leverage in my mind even from the indoctrination was preventing me from allowing myself to have that until, you know, of course I did reach that, that breaking point completely where I just, you know, at a certain point you, you wake up and you go, like you said, what am I doing here? And why am I here? Yeah. And it, just face, face life for what it is and go, I'm miserable and I am, I have no, no control over my life. And this is not the life that I want. And so at, at that breaking point, you, you just go, well, regardless of the consequences, I need to make a choice that I can live with, that I can lay my head down to sleep at night and go, I made the right choice. And mm -hmm. that can be incredibly hard. Definitely no question about it. Um, at the same token, it's, it's better than living the rest of your life a lie. Yeah. Once you realize that you're not living authentically to yourself and that you've been living for someone else's rules and thoughts and behaviors and you're like, wait a second, is that something that I want? It takes a lot to actually even ask that question because when you're in a high control group, that's exactly what it is. It's a high control, high demand. They tell you how to act. They tell you how to think. They tell you how to behave and you never get the opportunity to make real choices. They'll give you the illusion of choices mm -hmm. and they'll say, yeah, you could do this or this, but you know that if you do the opposite of what they want, that there are extreme consequences. So it's the illusion of choice. You don't really have a choice in what you're going to do. Totally. And there is so much of that in Scientology, so much of that. You know, the, um, Hubbard says, Oh, what's true for you is what's true. And, and now in retrospect, I, I always look at it and go, Yeah, what's true for you is what's true as long as it's what we say is true. 
Yes, you know, exactly. Or, or uh, you know, freedom of choice, you know, or uh, we accept people of all religions, you know, which is what they say. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth because mm. once you're then in the door and on the path and doing the programs and doing the training and doing the counseling and, and your indoctrination is underway, then at that point they go, well, actually, that's other practices. If you believe in something else, we have a label for that and it's called other practices. And yeah, no, sorry, never mind. That's not a thing. You can't do that. <laughs> Yeah, they just kind of rug pull and they're like, just kidding, but you're in now, so you can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, it's the bait and switch, the we got gotcha. you. Yeah. Now, you know, and, and again, it's, um, as you said, you know, high control group. What does that mean? It, mo it often means that all your friends are Scientologists. You probably work for a Scientologist. Your family are Scientologists. You know, you're the people you hang out with, you know, whatever. It's all this very small web that's all interdependent and all works to mm -hmm. keep you in that group and make the stakes very high should you decide to try and get out. Um, you know, in my case, all the family I knew growing up are Scientologists. They still remain in Scientology to this day. Um, all the friends that I had are Scientologists. Some have now left. And in fact, you know, I've this weekend spent um, time with a child that I knew in the cadet organization. We went to elementary school together. He's like my my oldest friend <laughs> and he's out. So that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yeah. So we talk a lot about the psychological manipulation of children and especially you when you were just so immersed in it and you weren't living a quote regular life outside of Scientology, which I know can also happen in some cases. But was there any sort of physical punishments or physical abuse that happened in that environment as well as, as it happens with adults? So I'm told with the whole and such, which we can get into later, but did they also do that with children because they don't necessarily believe in children? Yes. For me, I was uh, always, I would say, a rule follower, a conformist from a very young age. And I think that that was because simply because of the logistics of my personal situation being that my mom was the only parent I had left. So my life depended quite literally on conforming to what was expected of me. And I didn't want to try and run the risk of losing that. I didn't want to, you know, I everything I did was to try and gain her approval and acceptance and her love, which just mm -hmm. was few and far between simply by pure logistics of what she was doing. Um, but yes, there were absolutely um, physical punishment of children. Um, if In my case, <clears throat> when I was probably like eight or nine, I was assigned to what was called the DPF, Deck Project Force. You know, people have m more commonly heard of the Rehabilitation Project Force. It's kind of like they have reprogramming efforts um, for children and adults. Rehabilitation Project Force is for adults who are Sea Org members. The DPF is what I was put on. And the crazy part is the reason I was assigned to this program is simply because I didn't, um, I was assigned to do a, a project. Nobody told me when I was supposed to finish the project. So I just kept working on it. And then they said, Oh, 
you you didn't show up, so now you're in trouble. Now you're in um, lower conditions. You're going to be doing heavy manual labor, scrum, scrubbing dumpsters, and you know you have to run everywhere. And oh my gosh, it was awful. And and I wish I would have rebelled. <laughs> I wish I would have had the. I don't know. I I go well. Maybe my whole life path might have been different had I rebelled at that point. But you know, I I always tell people we come very we humans come very well equipped with uh, elephant size rearview mirrors, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there absolutely was punishment of children, and and for the reason that you brought up, it's Hubbard believes that there is no such thing as children. They're adults in small bodies. You're just, you've, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the concept of reincarnation so much as just that you, you have a body, you're a, a thetan, a spiritual being. And when, when your body dies, you go and get a new body. Um, and then you start your next life. And so that tends to undermine the family foundation and is used to undermine the family foundation within Scientology. Like obviously my mother, I'm just one daughter of, you know, millions of daughters she's had on the whole track as it were. So, uh, you know, not, not that big of a deal to go, well, she, you know, Daughter number one, Claire here, is a suppressive person and you can't talk to her anymore. So you need to disconnect from her. Oh, yep. Got it. Okay, done. Wow. It's so sad that they do that to these parents and these kids. Yeah. Because it seems like your mom just had to completely dissociate herself from you, especially if you're that young and you're being raised by other children. And did she know what was going on with you? Did she seem to care or was she just so focused in on her mission? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I've, I've given that some thought here and there. In my mind, we always had a reverse relationship in that, you know, she would always talk to me as, as an adult. And again, looking back, that's not surprising because that's what she was taught to believe in Scientology. Um, but she would be like, Oh, I think I'm in love. You know, when I was six years old, um, <laughs> I'd be like, Oh, great. Here we go. Who's going to be my stepdad now? Uh, yeah. you know, or what's going to happen? It was never a normal parent child relationship because of Scientology. Um, mm -hmm. when I was eight, she, um, my mother started a relationship with another Scientologist and she ended up um, marrying him. But before that, she t came to talk to me and she was like, well, um, I think I've decided to get married. Is that okay with you? And I said, well, no. <laughs> and and again, in retrospect, I, I was like, well, she wasn't really asking. I should have known that. I was so naive and- Well, you were a kid. Silly. <laughs> Why would a parent ask such a question? And then it was just ultimately embarrassing because then the next day- they were like, oh, we're going to take you for ice cream. I'm like, oh, great. Now, you know, you just go, what? Why? You told him? I said no? Yeah. <laughs> That's <rude>. so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of many examples. A another time even growing up, um, so after she got married to this person who then was my stepdad, and actually, ironically, he ended up uh, adopting me in England. And the reason he did this 
that I was told at the time is because they didn't want my dad, my real dad, to have any power over me whatsoever. Even though I had had no relationship with him, I hadn't I saw him once very briefly when I was six. I, I mean, I couldn't have picked him out from a crowd if I tried. But somehow he wanted to just cut all connections and completely isolate me from my dad's family. So I had been going to visit my grandma on my dad's side and cousins and all that. And then so he used this adoption to cut that all out of my life completely. I just didn't realize it at the time that that's what was happening. And then my mom ended up um, becoming pregnant. So it was going to be my first half sibling. And she was under a lot of pressure. They were implementing new rules where children were not allowed anymore. Um, So she was in, in a lot of trouble. And she ended up escaping and going to my grandma's house in Manchester, which was four or five hours away. And she left me behind. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> I woke up and was like, well, where's my mother? Anyway, that was a, a terrifying experience. And my stepdad left as well to go get her and bring her back. And I was just there by myself, uh, you know, getting the, the stink eye look because now my, my mother had escaped, which is a negative thing. And I, you know, I could just even at eight, I, or no, by that point, I was nine or 10. Even at that age, I could sense, you know, the, the innuendos and the, uh, the significances of what was going on that were negatively impacting me as a child. Wow. So they were pressuring her to terminate the pregnancy? She was going to be one of the last people that was going to be allowed to have a child in the C organization. So at that point, they were not uh, making those pr- those pressures, but that was started right after that. Um, mm. In other words, she knew that if she had this baby... That would be, that's it. No more, she wouldn't be allowed to have any more babies. And if she got pregnant a second time, she would be pressured to terminate. So she opted to take what they call a leave of absence, where she was going to just be out of the C organization for one year and have the baby. And uh, my stepdad had a like $30,000 in debt from having done the upper levels, the operating Thetan levels in Scientology. So they were planning to make a bunch of money, pay off his debt. And then after a year, come back into the C organization with um, my sister, my half sister, who would be one year old. So that's, that's what she embarked upon. Um, but during that time, she was on heavy manual labor. She was getting interrogated, like during the leaving process or the her trying to work to get this approved. You know, I remember her crying, just being upset. And, and even um, at one point, I was approached by adult Sea Org members, and they were trying to get me to stay behind. Uh, they're like, oh, you can just start your contract now. You don't have to leave with your mother. Just stay here. Do the right thing. Be on purpose. You know, you, you're, uh, you're ready for this. And I was, I was just like, uh, no, 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 no. Um, and so I didn't end up staying. I, I definitely felt very strongly pressured to do so though. Um, but 
in my mind, I was like, finally, this is my opportunity to get away like I'd always wanted to. Yeah. And so fortunately, I held my ground. But, you know, unfortunately, that transition didn't end up being the clean break that I had envisioned that it would be. Um, so we were still in Scientology, you know, she, she was, my mother was no longer in the C organization, but she was still a, a civilian Scientologist. So I was still going on and doing the Scientology training and I had to go, I, I was required to do 12 and a half hours per week of study of Scientology, um, courses. And so it just didn't end up being at all what I had envisioned. Um, and then I ended up moving into a Scientology school, which that was a whole other mm. <laughs> disaster because it was not accredited. It was Greenfields. They had, um, it was all people who had used to be in the C organization that had now become teachers and were teaching primarily Scientology kids, like most of the kids were Scientologists. Mm -hmm. It was a transition from at least I was no longer in the cadet organization. But nonetheless, I was still very much being raised in Scientology. And by that point, my relationship with my mother was kind of permanently chosen as you know, she treated me as an adult completely, and I never could walk that back. So she did end up taking that year off. And that's when you were able to live with her and then you moved into a Scientology school that was separate from the first one. Yes. Yeah. So my first school was just a public school in England. I moved to Greenfields when I was, um, I think, 11. So I was there from 11 to 13. That was not a good, <laughs> it was a step down from where I'd been in public school going to a Scientology school because now, you know, the teachers would yell at the kids and um, they were not accredited. Um, it was still very much the approach of you're an adult, get your work done, you know, not the mentorship, teaching, not a good education. During that time, all through that time, I was still studying Scientology at St. Hill, the headquarters, 12 and a half hours a week on top of school. So always the priority as a child growing up in Scientology, whether it be in the C organization or just as a civilian Scientologist, uh, the priority was always put on you, you get, do your Scientology studies. Um, that's what you need to be doing to be, um, upstat and to be protected and to have, you know, to be, um, a, a performing child. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> it's just like, there is no such thing as unconditional love growing up in Scientology. You're absolutely expected to conform. And um, the love and support you receive from your parents is dependent on you doing that. That's just mm. the reality of the situation. What did you observe your little sister going through? Because you were you had such a big age gap. Did she have to do the same type of things that you went through? Was she sent away? She was not sent away, no. And again, a big part of the difference in our upbringings was because my mother by that point was no longer in the C organization. I'd mentioned that my mother took a one-year leave of absence, but she never ended yeah. up going back. So, oh. yeah, so that kind of permanently shifted the course of our lives in that respect 
though we were still very actively being raised in Scientology, it was no longer in the C organization Got at that it. point. So, so my sister completely had a very different childhood experience than I did. Um, not, it was still completely cent- centered around, um, Scientology though. So for example, um, my stepfather said, told me one day, when my, let's see, my sister must have been two or maybe three. And he said, I, he came to me and said, I'm going to give you $20 if you can, um, train your sister on all the precepts of the way to happiness and, and have her learn those verbatim. <laughs> and, uh, so, so that might sound kind of, um, harmless, but, those were one, take care of yourself. Two, don't be promiscuous. So now I'm supposed to teach a two-year-old what promiscuous means. A two-year-old? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, again, this is the, the precepts. There's, I think there's 21 actually. Um, and he wanted my little sister at approximately age two or three years old to know all of these by heart. Um, because according to Hubbard, she should absolutely be capable of learning those that must have been really difficult for you emotionally and i i imagine there was probably some sort of feeling a little bit jealous of your sister in the way that she was able to grow up with her parents did you feel any of that animosity towards her uh i i can't say i had animosity towards her no um i you know i all i all i ever wanted was a normal childhood so the fact that she was getting that, you know, I loved her completely. I, I was more like her, a mother to her. My mother kind of, she, she never did well with, um, infants. So from a very young age, my mom kind of was crying and handed off my sister to me to help put her to sleep. And so I just always had a very close, uh, love of my sister. I was very, very close to her. I loved her. Um, and I wouldn't want, I wouldn't wish my childhood on anybody. Even at that age, I was like, it didn't, it wasn't that it was unfair. I was just happy to be out of that environment. Even though I was still in a very high control environment, it was still less so than what I had originally grown up with until the age of 10. So, I mean, it did strike me in, in terms of the differences. Yes. Um, but I didn't blame that on my sister at all. I didn't even, bl- I can't even say I blamed it on my parents, to be honest. Um, you know, I was just, <laughs> it, it was just like, hey, uh, hey, the cup is either half full or half empty. It's just a matter of your perspective. And I just didn't have a vindictive sense about it. I just, you know, it was simply the life that I knew. So, I just kind of learned to adapt and roll with it. And it's only, it's only been since I had children of my own that I gained any kind of perspective or view really about how I was raised, honestly. I think that's pretty amazing that you were able to have that perspective as a child because I know so, so often it's easy for siblings to get jealous of each other and seeing the life that she had that you didn't and you were able to still love and care for her. And I'm happy that she had you there to essentially fill in that mom position. That's really amazing that you were (laughs) able to do that. I'm wondering about the actual lessons because we talk about how you had to study Scientology so frequently. Do you remember any of the things that they were actually 
teaching you? And if you felt like now looking back, that was harmful for a child to learn? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great question. And yes, very definitely. Um, so one of the first um, courses or training that I did in Scientology was, um, well, the way to happiness precepts, which, you know, wasn't appropriate for a child, I think, to be learning about, you know, for example, don't be don't be promiscuous, but there, there were other aspects of that that were not necessarily harmful, take care of yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. um, love and respect your parents, uh, or honor and respect your parents, love and respect your children, you know, kind of basic stuff. But um, you get into uh, the training routines, uh, the they call it TRs, which is essentially communication drills in Scientology. That's where you get in, you start getting into things that are absolutely inappropriate for kids. For example, um, at age 10, I was doing a lower version of this course called the Success Through Communication course. And um, it starts out pretty not a big deal, like you're sitting in chairs. Uh, it's two people, you have you're the student, you'd be my coach, for example, if we were doing TRs. And the first one is you're just sitting there in a chair with your eyes closed until you can do that comfortably without reacting. Then next is TR zero, you're doing it with your eyes open, just looking at each other, not blinking, not flinching. You know, um, I've heard, I've heard people compare and state that this is hypnotic. And in retrospect, I would agree with that. You know, you're very much, um, conditioning, being conditioned as a child to just not react to anything. The next one is, um, now you add in bull bait. So now you're sitting there with your eyes open facing your your coach and that coach is supposed to do anything and everything to make you react. And if you react, you get a flunk and then they have to do it again and again and again until your buttons are flat. Well, that can include and did include in, in my case, um, a male coach trying to unbutton my shirt when I was 10 years old oh. and I'm supposed to not react to this. And you, that, that this is where you start to see the mental manipulation come in and how this is yeah. normalizing abuse to a child and go, you should, you're not supposed to react to anything that's done or said to you, no matter what it is. And uh, so you, you start to see the, well, wait a minute. Um, especially, you know, as a child, I thought it was normal because all my friends were doing it and, you know, they were all getting bull baited and they were all getting yelled at and, uh, you know, sexual jokes made to them and, you know, all manner of things like nothing. There's nothing that can't be touched upon in this drill. But in retrospect, again, I go, wow. <laughs> That was really normalizing and making things okay, seemingly. There were absolutely not. There's nothing appropriate about teaching that to a child at such a young age. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's really insidious and you start to see like, oh boy, I get now looking back again, I see how I was programmed and indoctrinated to accept abuse. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. As you were talking, I was just thinking, wow, this is just a perpetrator's paradise because they're teaching people how to be still and how to freeze and how not to fight back. That's so dangerous. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so yeah, that was just one example. And then, and then I was trained on how to become a counselor, how to, um, interrogate people starting at 14. I was, I was, um, tasked with interrogating adults, um, about things that they'd done and, uh, you know, very inappropriate sexual questions that I was supposed to ask adults. Um, there's a, there's a policy called the Johannesburg sex check, um, which is something that I was trained to do when I was 14. And if you look at the questions on that sex check, it's a security check. In other words, an interrogation, um, yeah, for a 14 year old to be asking such questions of an adult is a- absolutely outrageous. That sounds absolutely awful for anyone to do, let alone a teenager. What were some of the questions that you were having to ask these adults? Yes. So some examples of some of the questions on this Johannesburg sex check are, um, have you ever slept with a member of a race of another color? Have you ever embezzled money? Have you ever been a drug addict? Um, and then endless variations of questions relating to sexual activity that somebody might have transgress com- committed transgressions in. So yeah, it's, it's an interrogation. That's a lot for a teenager. And I want to talk more about your teen years, but maybe we can save that for the next episode. Talk about how you kind of doubled down, rose in the ranks, and then eventually how you were able to escape. So cliffhanger for you guys. (laughs) Um, Before we go, I need to get your Linda Listen moment, your sassy statement to an organization, or if you want to go the inspirational route, that's okay too. Yes, I will always choose the inspirational route myself. But I would okay. say, so I just say, Linda, listen, right? Uh-huh. Linda, listen, it is never too late to change your life path, uh, change your choices. It's absolutely okay to change those choices. It is okay to realize you're not living your best life and to correct that trajectory. It's never too late to do that. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I love that. This has been such a great conversation, Claire. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I really look forward to recording part two with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything you do. I love what you do. I think it's in this day and age is just so, so important that we understand what these high control organizations look like, what they feel like, the impact they have on people's lives. So thank you for everything that you do to help educate people. Yes. And thank you, guys. You definitely need to go check out Claire's channel, Blown for Good. It's Claire and Mark. They do it together. They go deep into all things Scientology so you can learn more about Scientology over there. And do you have any other social media handles that you would like to plug? I'm Claire Headley on whatever we call Twitter these days. X, I guess. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Me neither. Who knows? <laughs> and then we have our website, blownforgood.com, where we sell Mark's book, which is Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. There's more about the, about the, the two of us there and what we've been up to. And yeah, I would encourage everyone to follow, go to our YouTube channel. We have Spy Files, where we expose Scientology's fair game tactics. And then I also have yes. a series on there, Where is Shelley Miscavige, which, in which I'm interviewing people who know Shelley personally. So I've been learning a lot 
I worked closely with Shelly for eight years, which we'll get into in the next episode. But wow. there's some plugs for you. Yeah, that's a lot of good stuff. We Guys, you got a lot to catch up on. So head on over there now and subscribe and get into it. But again, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. And guys, if you want to support the channel, it would mean the world if you could like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment below for Claire here. And if you want to support even further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. I have to shout out Christine gave us a $100 super chat here on YouTube. And I'm just over the moon grateful. Thank you so much, Christine. And my newest patrons, Diana and I killed Earl. Thank you so much for your support. And if you like this episode, guys, definitely check out these two here. Uh, once her second episode is out, it will be here on the end screen. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.